least in the Bible, if you have one, uh, in the Blue Book, if you'd prefer, the, uh, the first psalm, Psalm 1. We have been studying the book of Revelation and the letters of the Lord to the various churches. Um, maybe you're wondering, couldn't we study more of Revelation? I, I, actually, I do have a, a new series, and I'm going to be going through that uh, longer series, and I hope it will be helpful to me because the fact is I don't understand Revelation. At least I don't understand so much of Revelation. I should put it that way. I've got some of the basic outlines in mind, and yet uh, it, uh, it definitely needs some more work from me before I'm able to give you anything with confidence. And so uh, I hope to take that up in the future. Um, it was a, uh, a, a study that caused us to uh, consider the Lord's will for his church. Indeed, uh, how many ways that uh, we need to grow. And I hope that Second Peter is the next natural study that we have from that as we uh, consider walking in the Lord's ways. I'd like to turn to something rather different than in the evening. I'm calling it the Psalms secret. Maybe I should call it the Psalms open secret of happiness. The Psalms open secret of happiness. I will explain in a moment, but uh, I'd like to read to you of uh, Psalm 1, the happy or the blessed man, uh, Psalm 1, the whole psalm, here we, where we read. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, as, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let us pray once more together. Our Father, meditating in this Torah, this instruction of the Lord, we pray that we might not only have delight, but uh, learn a way that leads to life and blessedness, uh, a happiness that has no end, and pray that you would establish us strong and fruitful. We pray that you would deliver us from the way of the wicked and enlighten our path by your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. In our famous founding document, at least the Declaration of Our Independence, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are said to be self-evident, God-given rights. What is quite so self-evident, though, I wonder, about happiness? What, what is it? Do we know I don't think so. What is happiness and where can it be found? It seems to be very elusive in our world, not self-evident at all. We seem to be trying to get happiness wherever we go, and the great tragedy of human life is that everywhere we are seeking it, we don't seem to be finding it, not speaking of us here individually, but certainly as a world, as a culture. Happiness is elusive. Blaise Pascal, that great French mathematician and philosopher, once wrote these wise words, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What do you think? You never make any choice, he's saying. You never take the least step unless you think it would be to your greater happiness to do so. There has to be some desire, in other words, for you to choose what you are doing. Uh, even a man who hangs himself is at least choosing what he believes to be the happier path uh, 
compared to the misery of continuing to live in this life, in other words, every action of every man has at bottom a motive of happiness. I, I believe that uh, ultimately he is right. We say there's all kinds of things that we do that don't make us happy. We pay taxes. Ah, but you pay taxes, something that may not make you happy, because you want to avoid a greater unhappiness. So that the relative happiness of being free from those 87,000 new IRS agents would be yours uh, by, uh, by, by paying your taxes. Well, we can't help ourselves, I believe. This is the way that God has made the human race. The whole world is longing to be happy, pursuing it in every action, down every path. And this tragedy, I say, is that all these actions and paths keep on giving us something other than happiness, even disappointment and frustration. Where can happiness be found? What is true happiness? Now, to answer this question, we could turn to many places, but the largest book in the Bible is introduced to us with this word, with this thought of happiness. As I'll be explaining in a minute, the word that stands at the head of the page, blessed, uh, maybe in your translation, happy, because it is the ordinary word for happiness. It's a special kind of happiness. It's a very enduring, wonderful, God-approved kind of happiness that doesn't leave even in bad circumstances, even when you're crying. And so uh, it's uh, here translated blessed, but it's not the ordinary word for blessed. It's the ordinary word for happy. As a matter of fact, that same word happy, you notice, that begins Psalm 1, also uh, ends Psalm Two, the last verse of Psalm 2. In fact, the last sentence in the last verse of Psalm 2. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The word again, happy. Uh, these, these two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, as I'll explain next week, are put at the very beginning of the book of Psalms to introduce to us the rest of the book. And that word happy keeps coming up again and again and again and again. What's the point of all this? Um, this is a book about happiness about true happiness, about a blessed happiness. And the, the Psalms have the answer to what we want to know. It uh, has a very comprehensive answer. It keeps coming up in, in various circumstances because that uh, happiness, the true happiness of the godly, uh, well, it needs a lot of explanation and, and sometimes nuance. Psalms 1 and 2 together do set the frame, though, through which we find every other happiness. Psalm 1 describes the happiness of hearing and keeping God's word. Psalm 2, the happiness of the one who has kissed the Son and taken refuge in Him. That the word of God and the Son of God are set at the head of the Psalter in order to introduce to us true happiness. And the first word of the first psalm and the uh, well, the first word of the last sentence of the last psalm uh, are bracket, uh, make this bracket of happiness in order to say to uh, a, a world that is seeking it but not finding it, listen to me. The open secret of happiness is here revealed. I introduce this book to you. This as a book on true blessed happiness. And I want you to learn from me. Well, more, as I say, more introduction next time. Uh, at this point, I'd like to plunge into Psalm 1, which we'll consider tonight under four headings. First, that the godly man has promised happiness. Second, that godly man's happiness is in the delight of God's law, that, that God, the godly man is truly blessed, and that the godly man enjoys eternal blessedness from the Lord as a result. I'll say those again as we go by, but that's the outline for, th for this evening. First, I'd like you to see just from the very first word of the first line that the godly man has promised happiness. Happiness. Happiness, which, as I said, is fabulously important to every human being. You might, it's not too much to say this is really the question of, of human life. Um, how can I be happy? 
The Lord certainly understands this and begins the book of Psalms, Long's book of the Scriptures, with this word. Introduces. The first word we come to is blessed. Now, this is uh, not the uh, word for blessing that you know, we might think to, to bless, to be blessed, barak, the Hebrew word. Um, we, we will come across that later. That's a very important word, uh, talking about the smile of God's face in so many ways and uh, the favor that, that he brings. But, but this is just the common Hebrew word that elsewhere is translated happy, happy. By the way, the same distinction is also found in the Greek uh, language in the Greek New Testament, where uh, some, sometimes, fairly often, we get this word translated blessed, but it's the word makarios. It's just the ordinary word for happy. Um, so you're going to say, well, this is very confusing then. Why would our translators use blessed than happy? Well, some, some of your translations have happy, but this, this difficulty um, is because when we talk about being happy, we're, we're, we usually mean in English, a, 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 a happy emotional state. There's good chemicals in our brain that make us smile or something like that, right? Happy, because I'm happy. Uh, the, the difficulty is that the kind of happiness that he is talking about is not so much an emotional state, but a state of life, as you can see here. Uh, a whole view of life and being. In other words, this word is actually saying more about how God feels about us than we feel about ourselves. It, it says something more about the, the way that we will eternally be, maybe not so much the way that we are at any particular moment. And so it's a difficult concept then to translate. It's, it's making an objective description of our state, not a subjective description of our feelings. We might be smiling one day and crying the next, but that doesn't change what the psalm is saying about us here. Um, for example, verse uh, 3, we will find ourselves very abundantly fruitful and firmly established. Uh, verse 6, the Lord is going to care for us and make us secure in the day of judgment. I mean, long term, absolutely, uh, very much happiness. But because it's not so much an emotional word, we, we are talking about a blessed state that God puts us in, not a feeling that comes or goes. Our translators have, I think, wisely used the word blessed or blessed. Does this make some sense? Um, we, we, we find this, the saints later on in, in plenty of anguish and crying and tears and we can say, well, how then can they be happy if they are crying? Well, they are blessed. When they think about the big picture, they, they do have a, a greater happiness, but that, that sadness may be overwhelming them at the moment. And so rather than having to explain this every time, most translations just go with the word blessed. However, after admitting all this, let me also say one more thing. Um, the blessedness described here is also carrying with it, even on our worst days, a deep, unshakable happiness, joy, and gladness of heart. It's ours even in our worst days. It would be very strange if people who were so blessed didn't at least at some time experience profound lightness and happiness and joy. I mean, right here in this psalm, in verse 2, we read about delight, a delight in the law of the Lord. Okay, maybe, maybe more or less, depending on the day, but delight, something that is very emotional, in other words. In fact, so many other psalms that we will come to emphasize joy, gladness, satisfaction, pleasure. Psalm 36, they're abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. You give them to drink from the river of your pleasures. That's very emotional. Psalm 9, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad 
and rejoice in you. The uh, verse of the day on the Bible app, if you have it, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs and with so many, many more psalms. Okay, we're not just talking about a blessed objective state. We are talking also about a supreme heart-expanding happiness, joy, gladness, and satisfaction that the world can't give or take away that we have on the most miserable day of our life so that we wouldn't trade places with the, quote, happiest person of the world who didn't know the Lord or his, have his word. And because our happiness is rooted in a state of eternal blessedness, we don't have a light or passing happiness like many people are looking for today. Uh, that kind of happiness you can get from a drug. It uh, wears off and you feel worse than when you started. This happiness continues and is always with us and even goes from strength to strength in general, even if many things in our life are causing us tears at the moment. There is a happiness that's greater than all the world's, the world's sadness. But it is kind of a paradox so that Paul could describe himself at one point as sorrowful but always rejoicing. Sorrowful but always rejoicing. He had a lot to cry about, but he had a lot to be happy about. And, and that's our picture. That's the difficulty in translating it so simply with, the, with one word. The Psalms are describing, in fact, a whole life that's deeply happy, that's fundamentally happy, that's permanently happy, even if there are dark veils of sadness that we must pass through. Um, I've given you the picture before. You can picture an ocean of water, and there's a great storm on the top, and the storm may be disturbing the, the, the several feet of water so that there's waves and breakers. But you go down below, and underneath all that, there is a deep, fathomless ocean that no storm can touch. And the same way God's people are permanently, deeply happy with a joy that no circumstance or person can take away. And God did not give you this desire for happiness to mock you. God gave you that desire in order to fill you. The purpose of your life and creation, as our catechism wisely points out, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What Jeremy often reminds us is one and the same thing from two different perspectives. The one and the other, two sides of the same coin. God didn't give you a desire for happiness to mock you, but to fulfill you. It's not wrong to want to be happy people. You want feel-good religion? God has made you long deeply for happiness. It's wrong to refuse and reject God's full and final provision for that happiness, but it is not wrong to long for it. In fact, Augustine put it this way so many years ago. If I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why you have become Christians, every man will truly answer for the sake of happiness. The Psalms, you see, are introduced, word one, with a promise of happiness. How are we going to get that happiness? Well, now the Psalms have a lot to say. What's the nature of that happiness? Well, let's take first things first. But now you're asking the right questions. The Psalms are given to frame our desires, to promise us what we seek, Point one, the Psalms are introduced to us by promising us happiness. Second, the godly man's happiness involves delight in God's law, or maybe comes from delight in God's law. The godly man's happiness comes from delight in God's law. This is the way. This is the way. There's a, uh, a contrast uh, given here, of course, and the truly happy man is given a choice uh, which walk in order that he might find the most happiness. Well, there is, a, a, in verse 1, a path that we are shown to walk, and at the head of that path, at the entrance to that path, we find there's counselors there. Counselors. Counselors that have plenty of advice about how we might pursue happiness. Now, today, these counselors are appearing on television and advertisements, and 
social media and uh, movies. If you get my drift, these counselors are the influencers of society. They apparently have youth and health and talent and perfect smiles, and we're encouraged to listen to them, to be like them if we want to be happy as they are. And, and, and they're at the head of a path that calls us onward. We, for our part, um, well, we, we do want to agree with these counselors, these people who matter. Um, we want their approval. If we're honest, there's something in us that desires that, and, and we want to rub shoulders with these people and maybe have a little of their counsel and influence ourselves. But there's a problem that the psalm warns us about right at the beginning. These are wicked counselors. These are wicked counselors that are not leading you on a path to happiness, ultimately, but of destruction and misery. These counselors are virtually criminals, ungodly sinners, and mockers of God in the true way. And the person who is going to seek happiness down their path and listen to them is going to be terribly disappointed. Positively speaking, well, we find another way. Now, this, uh, this, the statement of the godly man and his choice has three negatives based, uh, sorry, balanced by three positives. Sorry to be confusing on this. There's, there's first three negatives that were given, verses, uh, verse 1. Negatively, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I'll explain more in a minute. Positively, three, these three things, he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And what divides the negative from the positive, verse 1 from verse 3, the, the cursed way from the blessed way? It's verse 2 in the between. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. A couple of important uh, definitions or explanations from the writers. Just a second, if you would. Delight, writes one, means strong desire to have or to do something. So it is evident that the psalmist here speaks of joyful, wholehearted commitment to God's instruction for life and not just a compelled legalistic observance. You're never going to get very far in this path if it's uh, hanging your head because you have to go that way. There's a delight that is required to find true happiness a delight of the soul that motivates the meditation of the mind, you see. A delight of the soul that, that moves, moves the meditation of the mind. Another writes, uh, meditate pertains to ongoing mental interaction as a cherished object of affection at all times, day and night, as a habit of life. One commentator, Derek Kidner, comments, that in verse 1, the three complete phrases show three aspects or three degrees of departure from God by portraying conformity to this world at three different levels, accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes, scoffing. If not the most scandalous of sinners, scoffers are the farthest from repentance. Whatever really shapes a man's thinking is going to shape his life. And so we turn from this one path that uh, despises and scoffs and scorns uh, the way of the godly to delight in the law of the Lord. How are we going to be happy? Delighting, delighting in God's word. Hearing it and keeping it with delight. Well, not really a surprise, but as I say, a very important introduction to this book. An introduction in so many ways to the Christian life. Why have we believed in Jesus? For happiness' sake. And how do we know anything about Jesus? By his word. The Geneva Bible puts this uh, form of advice as the, uh, introduction, in its introduction. It says that this word is the light to our paths, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, 
the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment for our souls. You want the least true happiness. You have to start here. We are to treasure it, delight in it. We'll commit ourselves to it day and night as men and women, boys of girls of one book for everything that we believe, everything we hope for, every what they, part of our way of life, the answer to every real question we have is to be found here. So that John Wesley could say that once that he was a man of one book. And surely every single one of us, every Christian, be, should be able to say the same thing. That is the place that the Word of God must have as our delight to meditate upon it day and night. The word Torah is uh, generally translated law, and uh, law it is. The Torah typically is talking about the five books of Moses. You'll also know that uh, the law sometimes refers to the whole Old Testament or the whole of the Scriptures as it has the sense of instruction. And uh, this Torah, this instruction of the Lord, uh, is what we are to have a delight in, an absolute dependence upon the Word of our God. We are at our best when we are living according to its teaching. We're at our worst when we are not. And a book that matters that much and determines that much of your life and happiness, and eternal happiness, and state of happiness, is a book to which we must give greater heed. Delight in the law of the Lord day and night. In a few weeks, we're going to be reading in Second Peter about how this Word was given through men who were carried or borne along by the Spirit of God. Carried along by the Spirit of God. Uh, liberal scholars like to uh, debate what it means that the Bible is inspired, but uh, the Bible has its own explanation. It's the law of the Lord. Referring to Psalm 109, Peter says the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. That's how we are to receive these psalms, as the word of our God, the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of David. Later referring to Psalm 2, they pray, O God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, and so forth. Jesus himself referring to Psalm 110, David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till you make your, I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus has a theory of inspiration, and we must hold his. And this theory of inspiration is to lead us to a profound delight. Not to, not to harp on this too much, but um, I've told you before about the longtime professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, Cornelius Van Til. He once, uh, a brilliant man once said in his homely way, I've never seen my Lord Jesus Christ, but he has written me a letter. I mean, would you not delight in a letter from the Lord to you? Would that not be your constant and cherished companion? Wouldn't it become worn and tattered if you had a letter from the Lord Jesus to you? All your holding and folding and unfolding, showing it to others, pouring over its words till you knew them by heart. Suppose he sent you a letter indeed to tell you of his love and his grace and his life for you, to encourage you on your way and to bring you safely at last to his heavenly presence forever. What would such a letter mean to you? What a delight it would be. Well, Van Til was speaking very homely, I say, but he was understating the fact it's not just a little letter. He's given to us a great, mighty word. And a, demand, a man who delights in that instruction is truly going to be happy and blessed. Happiness is the great question facing human life. And there is so much woe in human life, so much failure, so much incompleteness, so much frustration, and looming over it all, the onrushing death. And through it all, every human being still somehow an inbuilt longing to be happy. And God wants you to know right at the very beginning, right at the head of all things, in a short and sweet way, you need to delight in my word if you want to be so happy forever. That godly man's delight is a large part of his 
happiness in the days to come. Well, we come also to read here about how the godly man is truly blessed. He's truly blessed. Well, what do I mean? Well, there are, there are two agricultural scenes given here, one of uh, fruitfulness and one of failure. Um, first, we'll uh, take up the failure. Um, the the, the uh, one who's gone down the, the path of the sinners is going to be like chaff, um, a, 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 a failure in that sense. In fact, uh, the Hebrew word for sin is also the word for miss, as I think I've told you before. Uh, for example, in the book of Judges, we read about 700 select men um, uh, who were left-handed, and everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss, not sin. Same word. To, to sin is to fail, to hit the mark. And this psalm reminds us that sinners, in verse 1, are failures, verses 4 through 7. Profound failures compared to chaff, not to fruit, to the worthless part of the grain that you have to, frankly, get rid of. And um, if you've never seen how this is done in various parts of the world, just briefly to explain the, the metaphor here, uh, if you wanted to grow some wheat or barley or something, you, you, uh, you go, you harvest it, and you collect all the heads together, and um, then you have all this uh, grain from the top, but the, but the, but the kernel is encased in uh, a dry husk that, that clings to it pretty well. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to beat it out, as it used to be called, to, to separate the kernel from the husk. And, and, and often it's, it's just taking a board and slamming it to, to do that. In fact, I, re- I read about one man who was at a remote village who d- drove a car to a remote village. And the people said, oh, while you're here, would you mind ro- rolling back and forth on our grain and uh, help us to separate it? Oh, okay, the man, the man did it. I don't know how well it worked. But um, in one way or the other, the point is you, you have to uh, kind of break it, break it apart, loosen the husk to separate it from the grain. So you smash it in one way or the other, and, and then you take this fork, kind of like a pitchfork, and you just take the mixture and you throw it up into the air on a day with a good, you got a good breeze, and the precious grain is heavy. It falls right back to the ground. The, the chaff uh, catches the breeze and, and floats away. And uh, typically, you put your threshing floor then on a hillside or someplace where you're likely to get a breeze so you can get rid of that worthless chaff. That, that's what the, the sinful man is like. He is not only worthless, he's a positive hindrance that the Lord's going to have to get rid of. He's failed in the purpose of his life. And as much as he might seem to be weighty at the time, in fact, in that day, he amounts to a great big zero, and the wind is going to drive him away. But the man who hears and keeps God's word is in a very different situation. He is given a different agricultural picture. He's pictured as a very fruitful tree planted by the streams, plural, or rivers of water that bears its fruit in season and always prospers. This, this, the, 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 the happy man, the blessed man, is this uh, man who's always prospering. Well, prosperity theology? You say, um, what, do you, what do you mean? What does prosperity look like? Well, uh, we're, we're told about fruitfulness, I say, but that fruitfulness and prosperity aren't really defined here. It's not stated. You, you might say, does that mean success at work or wealth or uh, a happy home and health and peace? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And, and frankly, other psalms do remind us that God is the author of all those good blessings. And it's called prosperity in various ways. We're reminded in, in, in the Psalms that, for example, diligent workers, diligent parents tend to enjoy a, a certain kind of prosperity, the word that's used. And the Bible says that when that happens to us, we should remember to rejoice and thank God that that's the case for diligent labor and diligent parenting and, and so forth and other things that I, I mentioned. Um, even, uh, even health are ultimately the, the blessings of the Lord that when He chooses to give, we are to receive. That, that is prosperity, and, and yet you can hear the but coming, can't you? But th- there are 
plenty of other psalms. In fact, there are many more (laughs) psalms than those, even more numerous, reminding us how many times the the godly do not enjoy those very blessings. In fact, um, laments are the most uh, common classification of psalms in any list you might see. And so many laments are crying out precisely for this reason, because it seems that the wicked are prospering in these ways while the righteous are suffering. For example, uh, as an extreme example, Psalm 37 and especially Psalm 73 record the godly, uh, David and and, and Asaph, his worship leader, um, having a crisis of faith where it seems that the godly are always afflicted and are envying the wicked who are always seeming to prosper. They're lying down, at their, gasping their, their last breath in peace. And Asaph has to ask at one point, have I just afflicted my soul in vain? It seems like a total reversal in so many ways of what we would expect. How are we to understand that? We'll consider some of these uh, psalms of crisis, but as I did say earlier, there are some very great blessings that are not uh, counted yet. Blessings that only the godly have, only the godly, that the wicked will never have. Um, First of all, to to, to know the Lord and to have Him to know us and to know our our way that's mentioned here, to, to have the love of God. To have known God, um, J.I. Packer's wonderful book, Knowing God, there's a story of a professor friend of his in, in England, I can't remember, Oxbridge, one of the major universities, uh, who, uh, because of his Christian faith and his outspokenness, has been passed over. I mean, he was tenured, but he, he wasn't going to go anywhere. There wasn't anything going to happen his, in his career. But, but he said to Jim Packer casually, but I have known God. But I have known God. So much to say that, it, that even the best of the, the university that could offer is nothing, nothing compared to this. Moses said, even the, the best things of Egypt, even the, the riches and treasures of Egypt were not worthy to be compared with the worst things of Christ, the reproaches of Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours, uh, and many, many more things that than we could say. I, I read about uh, Charles Spurgeon talking to a proud young man at one point who was boasting in all the good things that God had given to him. And, uh, and uh, he, he tried to reason with him for a while. It wasn't working. So he, he said, will you come with me? And he, he took him to, uh, to see a person in his congregation to, to visit an old woman who was on her bed in, in plainly in, a, in affliction, in agony. But a, but a believer. And um, he talked to her for a while, and, and he, he, he said, Now, uh, Madam, um, I know that you are here uh, suffering, and, and yet I, I ask you, would, would, you, would, you have, would, would, would you want to trade places, if you could, with, with such a young man with all of his prosperity and, and health and strength? who doesn't know God. Change, she said. Change. I would not change places with him in a thousand lifetimes. A woman who had nothing and was in agony would not be willing to trade places with a young man that had everything. The psalm describes the blessedness, the prosperity, the fruitfulness of a man who knows the Lord. And this is a very fruitful thing. We could spend much more time on this, but I think you get the point. The blessed person is said to be stable, that is, planted. Said to be rooted in an unending supply, streams of water. Said to be productive in season and due time, fruit in in season. The godly man may not have the best that the world can offer, but even the worst things that God has given him, even the reproaches of Christ, are better than the best things that the world can have. The godly man is truly blessed. Fourth and finally, 
the godly man enjoys eternal blessedness. The godly man enjoys eternal blessedness. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We've considered the two paths and uh, the two products, agricultural products. We now see that there are two verdicts. Two verdicts. The way that had been recommended by those counselors at the head of their path, the evil counselors, leading through sin and scorn, arrives at condemnation and destruction. It's a very solemn fact, I think, that this psalm about happiness, that psalm that begins with the word happy, out of order in the Hebrew, by the way, for emphasis, happiness, happy is the man. This psalm that ends with the word happy ends both in English and in Hebrew with the word perish, perish. One writer comments, the psalm began with the misapprehension of the path that the faithless could lead to a good place. That mistake. It closes by affirming that this path leads over a cliff and takes with it those who walk in it. And Psalm 1, therefore, constitutes a preemptive strike with regard to much that will follow in this Psalter. For the experience of attack, shame, fear, isolation, divine abandonment and divine anger are going to dominate the first half of the Psalter. And these prayers could give the impression, he writes, that such experiences are characteristic of the life of the godly. The Psalter begins by affirming this is not so. Psalm 1 invites the godly to set all such experiences in the context of its promise, this promise of blessed happiness. The psalm is going to be extremely realistic about all the struggles that we're to face. But it wants us to understand the frame into which these struggles are set. Light and momentary afflictions working for us in eternal weight of glory. And it's important for us to be reminded regularly by the Lord that present appearances notwithstanding, misery and condemnation, destruction and death await the wicked on the day of his judgment. And it will be, as the Lord says, like, uh, like it was in Noah's day. Men, joy and feasting, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that the Lord took them all away. In fact, there was a movie some time ago about Noah's Ark, and uh, I, I never saw it, but uh, Mark Ross, some of you know, my, one of my professors, um, wonderful preacher, he, he, uh, he recounted it to us. He, uh, he said it wasn't actually a Christian film even, so you know, you might not have expected too much, but he watched it. And when God sent the floods... The, the, those godly inside the ark could hear the screams of the people in the distance as they were trying to save themselves somehow on the hills and the tops of the trees in vain. And as their howls were, were reaching a higher pitch in the, movie, in the movie, one of Noah's daughters-in-law asks, Father, is that the wind? Noah replies, no, my daughter, that is the chaff that the wind drives away. That is the chaff that the wind drives away. And whoever wrote that line had some understanding of the Bible. For as difficult as it is to contemplate, we are reminded again and again and again that the wicked are like chaff, and they will soon be no more. But in contrast, we are told, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That is, he is intimately familiar with the paths that they take and the lives that they must walk. And he calls them, he supports them, and he will be with them in it until the end. He knows the pressures that you face. He knows the fruit that you will bear for him, wind and weather notwithstanding. 
and he's watching over it like a compassionate father to make sure that none of his children is lost until the great day when they are owned and vindicated. And that is why, brothers and sisters, no matter what this world gives us, we are supremely happy. No matter what can come in these few days of our privileges, of our pilgrimage, even if it looks like the way of the godly is foolish and the way of the wicked is being enriched until his last breath when he lies down in peace, there is the day of judgment. And we will stand. And they will not stand. And God will openly, publicly vindicate us in Christ and say to us, Well done! Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And on that day, He will wipe every tear from our eyes and even the smallest cup of cold water that we have, we have given to bear fruit for His name's sake. Even the smallest loss and word that we have had to endure for His persecution's sake. He will gladly and greatly repay so that we might be everlastingly, supremely, and in every way truly, truly happy. And the happy man who has received God's approval is eternally blessed. Set right up front that we might know the happiness. Now, in conclusion, who is this truly happy person, I ask you? Is the psalm describing us well? One who chooses the path of the upright to walk in the way of the law of the Lord, or one who listens to the counsel of the ungodly and stands in the path of sinners and sits in the skeet of the scornful. Can we say that this psalm describes us? Do we always choose the path of the upright? And are we walking in the law of the Lord? Is it our delight day and night? Well, well, we say, it's certainly true that we are seeking to walk in the Lord's path. Uh, as Newton said this morning, we're, we're not what we were, we're not what we want to be, but we're, we're, we're not what we ought to be, but um, we're not what we were. Well, this, this psalm does describe us, it's true, in a very qualified way. And in a relative sense, it's true, relative to the people of this world, as this contrast is given, it, it, it's true, but of course, in every absolute sense, we have to hang our head in shame and to say, this hasn't been true any day of my life. In, in any absolute sense, we must confess, indeed, as so many other psalms of happiness confess, even by men after God's own heart, that we too, like them, were brought forth in iniquity and in sin our mothers conceived us, that iniquity, transgression, and sin have marked our way, and rightly, does David ask in Psalm 30, 130, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Many, many other psalms face this sad fact, as we sang earlier, right from Psalm 25. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. There's a great many sins of our past and of our present and of our future. And that, uh, yeah, even if it's relatively true, Absolutely, it's not even close. We are not the blessed man of Psalm 1 who always shuns the sinful path and always meditates on God's law day, day and night, who makes it his food and drink to do his will. We are not such a man. We do know such a blessed man. In fact, we're going to be introduced to him next week in Psalm 2. The other happy psalm, the other blessed psalm that stands at the head of the Psalter one in whom we find the hope of the world, one who is in that psalm called Messiah, Greek Christ, God's Son. And even if Psalm 1 does not describe us very well, Psalm 2 ends with that word, blessed or happy are all those who put their trust in Him. He did walk in God's ways. He did fulfill every word of that law of the Lord. Shockingly, he perished, that we might not perish. He went down the, the road that we were on to the very end, that he might deliver us from it. 
And he is, Psalm 2 reminds us, the world's judge and its savior and the heir of the earth. And the world will still scorn and ridicule his way as shame and folly. But he is the truly happy person, happy beyond all comprehension. And the only way that we can ever be truly happy is through this word, through this instruction, this Torah, to find and to follow him. Relatively speaking, we can be relatively happy in this life. Ultimately speaking, we will be ultimately happy only in Jesus. He says to us, fruit-bearing people, you know, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And there's where we must leave it until next week. The hope of the world is not found ultimately in the law of the Lord, but in the anointed of the Lord. Blessed is the one who puts their trust in him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to uh, thank you for your word, confessing once again the blessedness of all that we have known, how, how we have seen things that other men long to see, how we have heard things that other wise and righteous men long to hear and did not hear, how we have found in such a word the, the hope of our lives and indeed behold the face of the Savior in so many ways as he is here revealed. We do mourn that in so many ways we are not nearly as blessed as we should be, taking too often the counsel of the ungodly and not meditating or delighting it in that law, we, we have found the opposite way too often to be our lot. And yet we thank you that we are not going to be among those who are driven away. You know the way of the godly. You have sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under that law, to redeem those who are under law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so it is in him, ultimately, that we can take our stand. As the law has driven us to Christ, Christ has driven us back to the law for obedience, and so therefore we pray that you would teach us your way, instruct us in your paths. May such a word evermore be our great delight. It's in him that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for your attention.